the upside of starting a business, of building something from scratch was very exciting and very interesting to both of us. And for me, it was that itch that I was trying to scratch. Like, let's stop watching people be entrepreneurs. Let's be entrepreneurs and let's give this a go. Welcome to In the Thick of It. I'm your host, Scott Hallrow. In this episode, I talk with Cameron Hay, co-founder and CEO of Dispatch Integration, a professional services company based in Canada. We actually met at a partner event years ago, so I was really excited when I finally got him to agree to come on the show and share his story. Cameron shares his inspiring journey from growing up on an isolated farm to becoming an entrepreneur after working for tech giant IBM and as the CEO of a medical device company. He talks about the unique dynamics of starting a business with his brother, the importance of values and culture, and his lessons learned from bootstrapping the business. Cameron offers perspective on making tough decisions as a leader and why reframing failure as a learning opportunity is vital for entrepreneurs. Well, Cameron, coming to us all the way from Canada, all the way down here in Texas, thank you so much for being a guest on In the Thick of It. It is my great pleasure. Thank you, Scott. So we've got to know each other in the last, what, I don't know, three, four years. We have a technology partner in common. And one of the things that I love about the ecosystems that we work in is getting the opportunity to talk with other people in the space. We don't directly compete, although, I mean, I guess you could possibly look at it, but I've just thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you and, you know, share what's working, what's not, what we're seeing. And anyway, appreciate the relationship that's been built and really appreciate you being here. The feeling is mutual, right? Like my kind of attitude is the IT market's a trillion dollar market. I'm a small company. I'm not a speck of sand on the beach of IT. So the chances of us colliding is very, very low. And the chances of us collaborating and at least learning from each other is very, very high. So that's what I always look for is these kind of happy collisions. Without a doubt, there's plenty to go around. No one of us can grab it all. Yeah. We always like to start with some background. So maybe kind of tell us what was growing up like, big family, small family, did you grow up in the city? What was growing up like? So I grew up on a farm in the middle of Canada in a province called Manitoba. It was a um, homestead farm. So it had been in my family basically since Canada was originally settled in the 1800s. And it was a pretty isolated experience. I think the nearest kid my age was seven miles away. Wow. And I had an older brother, two years older than me, and a younger brother who's seven years younger than me. And yeah, I would say it was probably not a typical experience, you know, that certainly you would think about growing up. Like it was isolated. We were a typical mixed farm of, you know, cattle and, uh, you know, various other animals, uh, various crops. And that was kind of our life was going to school, coming home, doing work on the farm, doing our homework. And maybe if we were lucky, watching one of three channels on TV. Back when it was all directly over the air and you had to get the yep. antenna just right. Exactly right. Yeah. So that was it. And, it, and of course, the stereotype of Canada coming from, you know, part of your perspective is actually very true. It was freaking cold where we grew up. So in the winter, you would typically have weeks where it would be minus 40. So let's just put it this way. It was not a place that I 
wanted to stay at from a very young age. It was a place that I wanted to leave and go see the world. And, you know, to the credit of my parents, they wanted that for all of us kids as well, is for us to go see the world, which was many times bigger than we could have imagined sitting on a farm in rural Canada. A second ago, when you talked about it being negative 40, I was about to ask, is that Celsius or Fahrenheit? But then I realized it really doesn't matter when it's that cold. <laughs> it doesn't matter. When it's that cold, you just can't feel your body, period. So it doesn't matter. So you any colder and you start measuring it in Kelvin. Yeah. I think you said your parents encouraged you and your brothers to venture out. Is the farm still there? Is it still in the family? So it isn't actually. So it was one of those heart-wrenching moments. My dad was basically the last farmer in our in our lineage because both my brothers moved on and I didn't stay at the farm. So when my father passed away is when we did let that farm go. But it was in our family for generations and it's certainly something that we take with us in our hearts in terms of our experiences. But yeah, it's no longer part of our family going forward. Imagine that was a hard thing to part with, but maybe a, a necessary one. Yeah, like everything, it's a chance for renewal, right? It's uh, being a small family farm in the mid-20th century made sense, but we were actually a pretty small farm, right? We had maybe 800 acres and farms in Canada, probably very similar to farms in Texas, which is you can't really be viable unless you have tens of thousands of acres these days. So it wasn't really something that was even a possibility of continuing on and making a business out of it. Yeah. You mentioned that the nearest kid your age was seven miles away. So you're not riding your bike, you know, two blocks away to go play with, you know, friend Tommy. Mm -hmm. What did you guys do for fun? Or was it really just all work? So I would say, honestly, it was a lot of work. So my dad, during the summer months, was basically always working. And so he wasn't around. Like, one of the things you think about is living out in the country is great. You can go fishing. You can go hunting, do all that type of stuff. Well, from basically April to November, my dad was working. So there was no fishing. There was no hunting. There wasn't a lot of stuff, you know, that he could do with us other than, you know, help have us help him. And my older brother, very uh, good guy, very different than me. And so we didn't exactly hang out together. You know, he was a couple of years older by age, but maybe four or five years older by mentality. And he he was thinking beyond the farm at a very early age. And so I guess growing up was very much about work. And I guess that work ethic kind of kicked in at that early age because, you know, working is not optional in the farm. If you don't work, animals don't get fed. If you don't work, jobs don't get done. And then the, you as a family don't get fed. So it's one of those things that are just part of growing up, right? It wasn't an option. You just did what you did to make the farm survive and thrive. There was a very direct correlation between your work and the fruit of your labor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, that's actually one of the things that I talk about with my partner, who's actually is my brother. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. But one of the mentalities we had is one of the things we did is we grew up through a drought period in the 1980s. There wasn't a lot of water. And my dad always would tell us, you don't get to drink until the animals get to drink. And, you know, as a business owner, there's kind of the same thing, which is you don't get the fruits of your labor until you know your employees are taken care of and they're looked after. And that's the number one thing, because if you don't put that priority first, 
you don't really have a farm or you don't really have a business. That is something that I think is that mentality that owners eat last. I think that that's something that anybody that's going into starting a business, they've really got to get their head around that. And mm -hmm. they've got to accept that early on and taking that even a step further. I think about as we were growing and as we were starting to add perks and benefits with everything that we added, I had to go through this mental exercise to say, okay, am I confident that we can sustain this? Because if not, I can't go take back the 401k match or I can't yes. take back the disability insurance that we're covering now and things like that. And yeah, you go last and you got to abide by the commitments you make to your people. Yeah. And you have to think about the bad crop year, right? So it's great to be, you know, in a season of abundance to want to do a lot. And it's great to do a lot, but you have to think about potentially weathering bad times too. And it's easy to, to kind of get over your skis, so to speak, sometimes. And like you said, do things that you think are in the best interests of the team and then find out, oh man, the business climate's changed. And those entitlements are much, much harder to sustain now. Yeah. Well, and man, I bet we could probably sit here for hours and find all kinds of correlations between farming and running a you know modern day business. And what you just talked about is having to be prepared for the bad harvest, the bad season. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a direct correlation to business. We're fortunate. I think we're doing well, but a lot of businesses aren't right now. Yeah. And that's a really real thing that you have to plan and, and prepare for. Yeah, 100%. So it's definitely something that I think about a lot. It's part of the, I think, the core lesson that I took from that experience. All right. That closest neighbor, seven miles away, what was school like? I mean, was that like a 20-minute, 30-minute, 40-minute drive? So we, basically, we lived way out, you know, kind of off the beaten path. So we would typically have to ride our bikes about a mile down a dirt road. So then we would hide our bikes in the ditch and then meet a school bus. And the school bus would drive for 25, 30 minutes, take us to school. And then we'd spend the day at school, obviously, and then do the reverse. And uh, hopefully the bikes were still in the in the ditch that we'd pick up and ride home and then start our chores. And were you making that bike ride in the winters too? In the winters, no. Quite often we would take a snowmobile out the same place and then hide the snowmobile in the woods by the road and then keep our fingers crossed that you could actually start it when you got home. <laughs> so, right. Otherwise, it's a long, cold walk. Did the bikes or the snowmobile ever disappear? No, we never had a single incident of anything disappearing. So we were lucky or just were surrounded by good neighbors, but it was all good. There was always a snowmobile waiting for us in the winter or a bike in the spring and the fall. And pretty much every day we could start that snowmobile. I imagine there had to have been some days where you came back and you might have had a hard time finding it because it was covered in in snow. <laughs> yep. Occasionally. And, you know, luckily in those situations, my dad would often come out and save us and drive us in. So he didn't completely abandon us in those blizzard-like conditions that were too common. So what was school like for you? Was it something that came easy? Did you have to work really hard to do well in school? So school did come easy for me. It was actually one of those things that I felt natural in a classroom. I was good at school. I was good in classes and I really enjoyed learning and I appreciated the love of learning. And you can imagine it can be a little boring at a farm, 
just hanging out by yourself. So school is a way to, first of all, meet people and to meet people your own age. And then secondly, to be exposed to this big world and these big concepts was great for me. I actually really enjoyed my school years. What were your favorite subjects? My favorite subjects were math when I was younger, because math was something that had a solution. And I loved the idea of working through a problem and getting to a solution. And I like social studies. And I I assume there's something similar to that in Texas, but social studies is basically learning about the world and the different countries and different cultures and all that kind of stuff. And that was also the talk about diversity of learning, the very kind of deterministic math thing. And then learning about the world on the other side were kind of two anchor things that I really appreciated and look forward to every day. Based on the way you described the work ethic and the amount of work that had to get done on the farm, I suspect I know the answer, but were you able to play sports? Were you, you know, involved in extracurricular activities? Just a little bit. So as you can imagine, everybody in Canada does strap on skates at some point and play hockey. So that was part of our uh, life. It wasn't a huge part simply because I'm relatively small compared to hockey players. So as uh, we got close to teenage years and kids had growth spurts, it was very hard for me to compete against people that were six foot two. I'm five foot eight. And you could get hurt playing hockey. So it was part of, I guess, the culture of playing hockey, but it wasn't, it wasn't a huge thing for us. It was what you did because that's what you do. But I wasn't varsity athlete or anything like that. I grew up in the Dallas area, and when I was 13, we moved to Minneapolis. And so I have shoveled snow at negative 20, <laughs> negative 30. I have experienced that. I don't miss it. Mm-hmm. But when we moved, I'd been playing roller hockey as a kid down here in Texas. And my parents said, hey, you, know, you can start playing ice hockey. I had no idea what I was in for. These kids <laughs> like you, these guys have been skating since yeah. you know they could walk. And here I come in 13. I'm you know years and years and years behind them. And um, it's kind of like football is here in Texas. You know, hockey is mm-hmm. such a big thing. And I loved every minute of it, but I couldn't keep up. Yeah. And certainly one of the things that's maybe a stereotype that Canadians are nice, that is not true in a hockey rink. Right. So they're rough. There's lots of fights. You know, maybe we're nice outside of the hockey rink because we leave it all in there. But there were lots of kids my size when I was like 13 that were getting collarbones broken and various things happening to them because it can be a rough sport. It's a great sport, but it, it can be tough. All right. You growing up on the farm, go through school. What came after high school? So I went to university. I was kind of, my dad had gone to university. He was the first of his family to ever go to college. And then I went to university. I had no idea what real jobs were like, like none. And so I ended up taking engineering because I had grades. I could take engineering. I'd never met an engineer in my life. I had no idea what engineers did, but I didn't know what the other options were. And it sounded a bit more appealing to me than going into medicine because I didn't really want to do that. And so I just kind of fell into engineering as as what I did in, in university, not because I had a love for it, not because I knew any engineers or knew a thing about it, but because I didn't know what else to do. It was the default. It was the default. Was it a general engineering or was there like, was it mechanical, electrical? Yeah. So I ended up taking 
mechanical slash industrial engineering. And again, not because I knew what a mechanical engineer was, maybe because it was a bit more real world-ish than electrical and or computer at that time and just seemed a bit more tangible to me. But uh, yeah, it was mechanical industrial engineering. And what school did you go to? I went to the University of Manitoba, which is, you know, basically a state school, equivalent to a state school in middle of Canada, about 30,000 kids in that school or adults, I guess, in that school, and maybe about a thousand people in my engineering class. What was that transition like for you going from, you know, the rural area to you're on a campus with 30,000 people? It was an interesting kind of cultural, I guess, journey. And it's interesting because I do remember distinctly talking to somebody who had actually, I don't remember where they came from. There was an international student Maybe they came from the UK or someplace like that. And the conversation was that it was more of a culture shock for me to go the 70 miles from, you know, living on a farm to living in a city in the university than for him to come from London, England to go to go to Winnipeg to go to, to university. So he fit in a bit more because that's, he came from a city and I did not. So he might have changed his mind after the first winter because... I don't think uh, London gets down to minus 40, but culturally, it was a bit of a leap for me. Yeah. So outside of classes, were you able to get involved or enjoy yourself with extracurriculars or was it still very much a nope, it's school and work and that's Yeah, it? so first year, I worked at school like crazy, basically because I thought I was going to flunk. I thought for sure... There was no way a farm kid with a mediocre education could compete against all these super smart people. And I better buckle down and work really hard and, you know, not let down my parents, my dad, my family for this opportunity to go to university. So first year was worked really hard. It turned out that I was top of the class that year. So that was like, okay, these people from the city, they are not orders of magnitude different than I am. That was kind of a big lesson for me. While I didn't necessarily have the best education, I could learn and I could compete. And so that gave the subsequent years at university some more breathing room for me to actually learn what it's like to be a human amongst other humans and develop friendships and, you know, do extracurricular things and meet people and enjoy what being a young person living on their own for the first time was like. But the first year was, it was all work. And, uh, you know, I look back and I said, that was a mistake. I didn't need to work that hard, but I didn't know I didn't need to work that hard. Did you maintain that top of the class status all the way through? I did, except for third year. I did have a bit of a, um, so actually I went blind in third year. I had a weird thing that happened. So I suddenly lost my eyesight completely so i developed cataracts which are very common for older people yeah i developed them as a young person and by third year i couldn't see so i was still in class i didn't tell anybody i couldn't see but i'd have to sit at the front of the class and pretend i could see and I, even if i was at the front of the class i couldn't see the chalkboard and so then at the end of third year i did go get surgery and I had my eyesight restored. So I had a bit of a blip in third year where I was faking it. But then back and forth year, I had my grades back again. So, Well, 
thinking about kind of your progression coming in, I think it's safe to say like you didn't have a lot of confidence in your ability to do school and that caused you to work really hard, but you obviously achieved a lot in that first year. And one of the things that I've seen in a lot of people is once you've had success, it begets more success. It gives you that confidence. It gives you that, you know, hey, I've done this. I can do this again. And it just continues to build on itself. Does that resonate at all? I think it does. Although one thing that I do, like, for instance, I tell my kids is don't be one dimensional. So if you measure your worth as a human, as a student, as let's say, for instance, on just getting good grades, you might get those good grades, but that's a one dimensional victory. It's not actually what will drive success in the real world. And it's not, which in my belief, is not what's going to drive happiness. And so being solely focused on good grades and by doing that, forgetting about all the other things that are really important for young people to learn, I think is a mistake. And it's a mistake that I have encouraged my kids not to repeat. So yeah, I was good and I did get that success, but that didn't mean I felt like I could be successful in other domains. And so I kind of still, you know, to this day, probably have a little bit of imposter syndrome and some of that drives me to work hard and some of it's healthy in a little bit of moderation. But overall, if you just focus on one dimension, I think you're ultimately setting yourself up to, I think, be unfulfilled. I completely support that. I think about my college experience and I made okay grades. I was definitely not top of my class, but I made good grades, but I was heavily, heavily involved in things on campus and I had jobs and So for me, it wasn't just the class. And I probably said this before on the pod, but I learned far more outside of the classroom Mm. than I did in the classroom. And that's not to take away from the education, but I developed so much good life experience with being involved in different things that has continued to serve me well to this day. I think that's absolutely critical. And uh, I'd say what I did was not the way I would recommend it. I'd recommend that's a pretty magical time to not yet be fully in the real world and have to pay bills and do all that that stuff. So you're still a little bit of a kid. You're not yet a full adult. And what makes you a full adult is a breadth of experience and a breadth of just seeing what life's all about. And if I could redo that part of my life, that's what I would have done. You overcame a pretty big obstacle your third year of school. You go on to finish strong. What came immediately after college? So to the credit of the good grades, I did get an opportunity to get a good job. So I got uh, recruited directly out of university to join IBM. This is the late 1980s when IBM was still the tech company to want to be part of. They'd never done a layoff. There was this big mystique about being an IBMer. And for me to you know have the opportunity to become part of that was super exciting for me. So I left fourth year engineering directly into a job at IBM. And that's what took me to Toronto. There's a uh, pretty big IBM presence in Toronto. And I came to Toronto as a mechanical industrial engineer for IBM. And in that role, were you working on more internal facing efforts or were you doing customer facing kinds of things? It was all internal. So as a mechanical industrial engineer, I was responsible for building manufacturing processes. At that time, the manufacturing facility I was in was building memory cards 
massive four megabyte memory cards was state-of-the-art stuff back then. So what I was doing was working on robotic systems, vision systems, laying out uh, physical processes for manufacturing, supply chain, all that kind of stuff. Was that exciting and fun working with robots? It was fun working with robots. What actually was more fun for me was working at IBM. You know, obviously I didn't stay there, but there was a couple of things that really were amazing to me there. One of them was you walked in the first day and they gave you their the principles of what it is to be an IBMer. And the first principle that they basically talked to us about was respect for the individual. And I didn't know what respect for the individual was, but that was something that was really core to the culture there. I assume it may be still to this day, but it certainly was then. And that concept is attack problems, don't attack people. Put the problem in the center of the table, work on that problem together. You may have divergent opinions or approaches or ideas, but never attack the person. Always show that person dignity and have respect for those people around you. And that's something that I think is really important. It's so easy to tell somebody you're wrong, you're dumb, whatever, but that's not how you get collaboration. Collaboration comes from deep, like authentic respect for everybody that you work with, trust with everybody you work with, and a common interest in solving hard problems. And that's really what I took away from there. The robots were cool. I really enjoyed that stuff, but it was working with some really smart people that shared those types of values that I thought was huge for me in my development as a young professional. And you said that was late 80s? Yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, and that was, it was a really, really big deal to work for IBM. That was a huge thing. And, you know, they were still very, very much in their heyday. I had an uncle that worked for IBM his whole career, and I know he really, really treasured his time there. At that point, was IBM still much more focused on the hardware side? You know, over the years, they've kind of transitioned to really becoming a services company. But I got to believe that they were, you know, squarely a hardware company at that time. It was basically integrated hardware software. So I came in just at the era when PCs were blowing up, they were becoming huge. But it was still about mainframes. It was still about servers. It was still very much about building this great hardware that had software integrated with it. It's actually, I think, a paradigm that they struggled with because there was the disintegration of hardware and software, and IBM resisted that greatly. You might be old enough to remember OS2, maybe something that you, you may remember. And if not, OS2 was the... IBM's equivalent of Windows. And when I was there, they were still absolutely convinced that Windows was a flash in the pan, that why would anybody buy software separate from the hardware? And they believed they had the best hardware in the world. So Windows was going to be a blip and disappear, and OS2 was going to be the operating system for the PC. And obviously, it didn't pan out that way. I remember... I mean, it's been a long, long time since we talked about it this way, but you would talk about things as being IBM compatible. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where it comes from is those early days where Microsoft was trying to divorce the software and the hardware. Yeah. And didn't Bill Gates get paid by IBM to write OS2? Meanwhile, he was building Windows. He didn't 
Well, so there was lots of rumors. I remember the rumors at the time. And one of the rumors at the time was that he was approached to run IBM. And infamously, and I don't know if it's true or not, but he turned down the job, smart move in his part. And his parting advice was, IBM, get out of software, stick to what you're good at, it's hardware, and leave us, uh, you know, next generation companies to do the software. So, you know, I don't know if that's true, but certainly there was a lot of, I was one of 350,000 employees. There was a lot of rumor mills at that time that we kind of knew IBM needed to go through a transition. We were nervous about it. And we were kind of listening to the grapevine very intently pre-internet. So I don't even know where the grapevine came from, but somehow we all knew about it, that they were looking at, you know, potentially hiring Bill Gates to lead IBM back to its glory days. Interesting. How long did you stay at IBM? I was there for five years. And what came next and what was the impetus to leave? So I like, I really enjoyed my time there. One of the kind of impetuses was, as you talked about, it was just at the tipping point of IBM, you know, not being the big monolithic thing that it had been. And the manufacturing facility that sold or manufactured SIM cards, they got sold to a company called Celestica, actually spun out as a separate entity called Celestica, which was a contract manufacturer. And the PC division was spun out to be Lenovo, Lexmark, you know, was spun out as the printer division. And so that sense of, you know, IBM being the big place to build a career just started to disintegrate for me personally as all these different pieces were spun out. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was it was a very internally focused job. And I'd walk into the same manufacturing plant every day. And one day I was walking in and I just said, can I see myself doing this for the next 10 years? And and the answer was no. Yeah, the answer was, yeah, I, I probably need to make a change. So mid-90s, leave IBM, and where did you go next? So one of the interesting things for me as I reflect on it is, even though I grew up in a farm, and it's, it's in, in kind of hindsight, I go, that's the epitome of actually a business right down to its essence. At that time, I didn't feel like I knew anything about business. I thought I was a good engineer. I could do my engineering job. I was working in a large company, but that is disconnected entirely from being in business. So the question was, well, how do I learn how to be in business? And again, pre-internet, didn't know anything. I guess the idea was I should do an MBA. So that's what I did. I signed up did to, to a, a business school to do an MBA and left IBM and spent two years kind of learning the academic version of what it's like to be a business person. So it was the experience on the farm that sparked the interest to go into business? So it was, you know, I'd always had this sense of a, like a bit of a mystique in my mind that, you know, we weren't real, growing up on the farm, we weren't really business people, we were farmers. But business people were people that I'd kind of put up on a pedestal as particularly entrepreneurs that had, you know, were creative and basically could build value out of nothing and didn't answer to anybody and were interesting people. And I was like, I, I really want to be an entrepreneur, but I have no idea how to be an entrepreneur. There's no internet, you know, didn't know any, still didn't know any business people. 
knew engineers at that point, but no business people. So how do I learn how to be an entrepreneur when I'm still naive to this whole process? And that's where, well, maybe business school teaches you how to be an entrepreneur. I don't know. So I'll go to, to business school and hopefully they'll teach us all those things that the magic of what it takes to be an entrepreneur, which of course they didn't do. <laughs> you said it was a two-year program. Was this a you know full-time student yep. program or was this a hybrid where you're also working? Yeah, it was a full-time program back in those days. That was very common. Still is pretty common, but back in those days, it was it was common. And the school I went to is a probably Canada's best business school. It's a case school that basically does a lot of work with Harvard. So very similar methodology, case studies every day. You read a different case in the morning. You kind of synthesize it. You try to answer what the answer is for the business person and the hypothetical problem in the case. And then next day, do it again with a different case. You're married now. Were you married when you started business school? I was married. My wife, God bless her, she was willing to basically uproot her career. She was a, a pediatric nurse and she uprooted her career, moved with me to a different city to attend business school and supported us through that business school two-year journey. So. She basically um, kept us going as I went to classes. So, you know, one of many commitments that she's made through the years and sacrifices she's made through the years to our marriage and us as a couple and a family. In that time period, would she have said that the sacrifice was worth it? Back then, she probably, you know, I think what she would say is she knew I was unsettled, that I didn't want to be an engineer, that I wanted something more. So she said, yeah, this is probably good to do that. We're still relatively new in our marriage at that point. We'd just been married for a couple of years. So I think she was up for an adventure and she'd never complained. She'd looked after us. So she made sure there was a check coming in to feed us. But, you know, she did make a sacrifice. She had a very good career in a very good hospital doing some really good work. And she pushed the reset button on her career to help me take that step and do the MBA. What came after business school? So business school taught me a lot about business, but nothing about business, if you know what I mean. It was probably a lot more theory and not so much hands-on practical application. I'd say it was a lot of corporate, like how to, if you were a, let's say you were the CEO of a $300 million company and you're in this scenario, what do you do? And you answer that question and the types of jobs that come out of doing two years of that are typically finance jobs. So you go work at a bank as an investment banker or consulting jobs where you go consult to those large companies and pretend you know what you're doing and help these large companies be successful. And that was what my next step was, as I then joined a management consulting company and uh, at that point kind of toured the world, including you know moving to Minneapolis for a while, like you mentioned earlier, and helping large companies with business strategy, operation strategy, that type of stuff. What management consulting firm were you with? It was Ernst & Young. So you start on the farm, man, you built this pedigree. I mean, getting to IBM, that's a big thing. And then getting into a top business school and now management consulting at ENY, like that's a big, big deal. What did your parents think of that? Surely they were beaming with pride. I think my parents were, they were proud of all of their kids. I and mean, we've all had different journeys. 
I think the thing they're most proud about is the sense of maintaining values that the little town I grew up in was called Austin, Austin, Manitoba, not Austin, Texas, town of, you know, the, this village that was seven miles away from where I, our farm was, maybe 120 people lived in that village. And my dad would always say, never forget the dusty roads of Austin. So no matter where you go, don't forget that. You have to always remember those dusty roads of Austin. So I think as much as he was proud of all of our accomplishments, I think the thing that he was proud about was that we tried to honor where we came from and maintain our values and never forgot what it was like growing up on the farm. As an aside, there is an Austin, Minnesota as well. And I know that because I played <laughs> in a very, very cold hockey tournament there when I was a, either eighth or ninth grade. So that's hilarious. There's probably 20 Austins throughout at least, the U.S. And at Canada. least. <laughs> Ian, why? How long were you there? So I was there for five years as well and did a lot of international travel. So that what Ian Y exposed me to was doing business overseas. So I spent a lot of time in Thailand and Singapore and Malaysia and UK and Mexico and places like that, which again was this super eye-opening thing for me. Up until then, even you know at IBM, I hadn't really traveled anywhere, right? A very internally oriented job maybe a few trips to various U.S. cities, but had never really done any business outside of North America. And this was like, suddenly I'm on huge trips to, you know, help companies set up manufacturing facilities in Bangkok or helping to consolidate operations in Scotland, that type of thing. So very, very big learning experience for me and appreciating what it's like to work and, you know, to a certain extent, live in these other places, these other parts of the world, and how similar we all are. Taking on these massive projects, was that intimidating at all, or did it just feel natural? Uh, very much intimidating, particularly early on in that experience, because keep in mind, I didn't know anything about business, right? Other than, you know, I was an engineer, or at least I didn't think I knew anything about business. Engineer a little bit of business school, so a bunch of cases, and then suddenly you're thrown into real-world situations where you're dealing with projects that, you know, have hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. So I was intimidated. It was one of those things that you, you know, I never took lightly. The responsibility was big. But again, I was very lucky to have worked with some great people. So it's not like you go into a place all by yourself. You are surrounded by other great people that know what they're doing. And yeah, great opportunity for me to learn. At some point, I guess five years in, you said, hey, it's time to get off the road. And did you move back to Canada after ENY? Yep. So back in Canada, moved to Toronto. You know, interestingly, even though I was still, you know, I was doing business as a consultant, I still had this thing that I wasn't an entrepreneur. I wasn't actually a business leader because a consultant doesn't lead anything. They basically tell other people what to do. And so my next career was uh, joining a medical device company where I started as a VP of ops and then within about a year became the CEO of that company. What kind of devices did you all make? Hearing aids. So it was a hearing healthcare company. It was a Canadian-based company that was ultimately sold to a Swiss company. The business that I ran, the company was called Unitron, Unitron Hearing, which is still a brand. There was about 600 employees there. And that's where, for the first time, I felt like, okay, I'm actually running a business. Still not an entrepreneur, 
but I'm running a business. We are thinking about things like go-to-market strategies, international growth strategies, R&D operations. It kind of really felt like, okay, this is business. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. I liked the people. I liked the industry. I liked the job. And I liked the challenge. And so while I was traveling a lot at ENY and I thought, okay, this job at Unitron is going to be less, less travel, I ended up traveling to 42 countries in the eight years I was there because we were doing a massive international expansion. We were buying companies, setting up companies, setting up factories. So it was even more travel at Unitron than I had at uh, ENY. Wow. And meanwhile, you've said this a few times, so I want to drill into it. You didn't feel like you were an entrepreneur. Yeah, it was somebody else's company. I was just a hired gun, spending somebody else's money, hopefully making other people money, but it wasn't my thing. So, and that was actually one of the continued driving forces. It, it was the sense that there's still a persona. There's still this idea of a, being an entrepreneur and setting your own agenda and building something from nothing that I still felt there's something more out there for me. So I was at uh, Unitron for eight years, great years, learned a lot, surrounded by great people. And then I left there and was like, okay, what do I do now? Still very interested in entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur, but still actually not 100% sure how to be one because you, you know, was running a $200 million business. It's a little different than starting something from scratch. So then I got involved in a tech incubator ecosystem, you know, a bunch of tech companies. There's a city relatively close to Toronto called Waterloo. Infamously, their largest tech company that came out of there was BlackBerry, but it's a pretty large tech hub. And I got involved in the kind of the tech ecosystem there, invested in a few companies, a few entrepreneurs, sat on a few boards. So you know, got closer to the entrepreneurs. I was working directly with the entrepreneurs, but I still wasn't one. This is just nagging at you. It is. And, if, you know, I would sit on these boards and I'd look across at these young kids that were entrepreneurs and they were looking to me for advice. And back to that little sense of imposter syndrome, I'd say to myself, I can give you advice from my experience of running a business, but I cannot give you advice as somebody that's put things on the line the way you're putting things on the line. And so I still had that sense of I'm still not there, not an entrepreneur yet. It's not yet that place I wanted to be. And what led you to dispatch? Yeah. So I had invested in some companies, was participating in, you know, a lot of board meetings with various companies. And one of the companies I had invested in and uh, was on the board of was a HR tech company. The company was called Tribe HR. Great CEO, great people at, on that company. It was a successful company that was basically trying to be an HRIS system for small businesses. And as we were growing that business, one of the things that was a very big point of friction for us was integrations with this great product. And we would talk to customers about it and they'd say, love your product. Does it integrate with this payroll system? Does it integrate with our financial system? Does it integrate with these other systems? And at that point, I didn't really know 
what the state of the art of integrations were, but it became very clear to me that integrations were a problem and there weren't great solutions to solve those problems. So that was kind of in the back of my mind as I was spending time with this company and, and helping them out. We ended up selling that company, I'd say probably prematurely and probably it, partly because we couldn't solve that integration challenge. It got sold to NetSuite and it was a nice little exit. But I was still at the back of my mind was integrations are a problem. I think there's an opportunity here, but I couldn't quite put my finger on that. And what time frame is this? Is this late 2000s, early 2010s? This is actually a little later than that. This is 2013. 2013. Yeah. So kind of taking that little lesson, it was sitting in the back of my mind. And my younger brother, the brother who also grew up on the farm, seven years younger than me, I'd left the farm when he was only 11 years old. So didn't really know him as an adult. I then moved to 1,500 miles away, only would see him at Christmas, you know, maybe once or twice a year. Just kind of generally knew what he did. You know, he's working in tech, but I didn't know a ton of what he was doing. And as it turns out, we were just hanging around one afternoon, having a beer. I was asking him, okay, Gavin, what do you really do? And he said, oh, I'm in integrations. I build integrations for Workday. And I went, oh, that's interesting. (laughs) And he'd actually been employee number one of another entrepreneurial company that was doing consulting in the Workday ecosystem. And he was an integration expert. And that company ended up getting sold to PwC. He was looking at what to do next. And I said, oh, that's interesting. That problem is something I've seen from a business side. He's seen it because he's built it. Is there something here? Could we do something together? He was very technical. He was actually probably known as one of Canada's best integration experts, particularly in Workday. And that was kind of like, let's give this a go. Let's try this. Let's see if we can make a business out of this. And one of the questions I asked him, because he's younger than me, his kids were younger, he had three girls, was what I do know about entrepreneurship is you have to be willing to go through those bad seasons, right? Those bad years. How long can you live without an income? And he said, about two weeks, because that's when my mortgage is due. (laughs) So... So it was like, okay, that's a criteria that we have to think about here is we can't just start a business and play around for a year and see if we can be successful. We have to hit the ground running. And so the first thing we said is, let's see if we can sell our first contract. If we can sell our first contract, let's incorporate and start our business at that point. And so that's kind of what we did is we went out and talked to a bunch of people eventually found a problem, big problem that it was actually with a large Canadian retailer that they were looking for help with. And we closed a $60,000 contract prior to us incorporating and uh, setting up the business. So that was our origin story. And that was, for me, one of the biggest ahas. It's not about technology. It's about solving business problems. And it was kind of back to the essence of what it is to be a farmer, right? We have to just do the needful. And that needful was contracts. We need to establish relationships with our customers and we need to feed our families. And that was kind of the ethos that started us and the ethos that we continue with. 
So your brother was still employed at this point, but didn't really see himself there long term. You had come off your eight years as a CEO. You sat on boards and were an investor, but it doesn't sound like you had a nine to five kind of a job. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that is fair. I was doing some independent consulting. I was sitting on board. So I had a bit of luxury of time to think about it and to work on this problem. And my younger brother was, yeah, he was working. And it is a leap of faith to be an entrepreneur. And it was one of the conversations we had was, is this risky? How risky is it? And you know what we concluded was, so he's very employable. We could try this if it wasn't successful he could go get a job. And so there was no failure mode that would be fatal. He wasn't going to lose his house. He wasn't going to, you know, lose his family. He wasn't going to do, there was nothing going to be catastrophic, but the upside was significant. The upside of starting a business, of building something from scratch was very exciting and very interesting to both of us. And for me, it was that itch that I was trying to scratch. Like, let's stop watching people be entrepreneurs, let's be entrepreneurs and let's give this a go. I love what you said earlier. You talked about entrepreneurs create value out of nothing. And hearing your story about getting that first contract, like you literally created value out of nothing. You weren't even incorporated, right? We weren't even incorporated. You probably didn't have a business card. We didn't have a business card. We didn't have a logo. When we got that contract, I went onto PowerPoint and I created a logo. So it was like right down to the essence, right? We are doing the needful things. Very different than, you know, being a CEO, no disrespect to people that are big, important positions and big, important companies, but you don't learn the skills there that move the needle, like the things that you need to do on a day-to-day basis, how to negotiate a lease, how to create a logo, how to write a contract. When you work as a CEO of a large company, You have other people doing that stuff. And when you're an entrepreneur, you do it all yourself. And that was thrilling, honestly, for me and my brother. I think it was very exciting. And it was the business school that I had been craving all along, right? This is the core essence of business is creating value that other people, you know, recognize as value and are willing to pay you for. That was kind of an epiphany moment to go through that that period of time. You talked about kind of the the mentality and the the way that your brother processed the risk. How did you process that risk? So, you know, I, I'm seven years older, so I was seven years a little bit more established. Again, I'd gone through the same thing as nothing's going to be fatal. The only thing that might happen is we might fail, the business might fail. And then, you know, maybe there's a bit of a bruised ego that we tried something and weren't successful. But on the other side, it was, hey, this is an opportunity to do something unique. Not everybody is privileged enough to be able to be an entrepreneur. You know, it's kind of interesting. I find that when I work with young entrepreneurs, there's people that don't know any better. They become an entrepreneur because they're not told otherwise. And then people that were kind of in my position that were comfortable enough that I could take that risk and it wasn't a fatal risk. So many people get caught in the middle where you are trying to make mortgage payments and you're trying to make car payments and you're trying to put your kid through school. And that leap of faith of being an entrepreneur just seems completely out of reach. 
because you are kind of trapped in that life of earning an income. And it feels like it can be an impossible trap to get out of. I think it's not impossible. I think it's definitely one of those things where there's definitely a privilege to be an entrepreneur and be able to take those risks. But the U.S. and Canada, they are, our economies are run on entrepreneurs, right? Most businesses are small businesses. Most jobs are created in small businesses. Most values created in small businesses. And, um, you know, I have huge, huge respect for everybody that takes a risk regardless of where they are in their journey to be an entrepreneur, because it's an astounding thing to see. And now that I've been one, I've got more respect for entrepreneurs than ever before. I always thought they were mystical and magical, and uh, I'm not mystical or magical at all, but I look at other entrepreneurs and the stuff they do, and I go, wow, that's incredible. I'm in awe of what you're doing. I'm in awe of the things that you challenge yourselves and your teams to do every day and create that value. It's an amazing thing. And that, Scott, that includes you. I watch what you guys are doing and the value you create, and I'm in awe of what you do. Well, I appreciate that. I, um, as you were talking about that, the thing that came to mind for me, and I struggle with this, comparison is, man, it's a hard thing. And I was very fortunate to go to college with some very, very driven, very, very capable, and today very, very accomplished classmates. And Sunday night after football was over, I left the TV on and I never watched 60 minutes, but it's on. And two of my former classmates that was in a men's organization and some other things, they're being interviewed on 60 minutes. And I'm like, mm. wow, like <laughs> wow, they've done something massive. And you know, what have I really done here? But you get yourself stuck in that comparison trap and it doesn't lead anywhere good. Yeah. I find that too. I think a lot of people do it's kind of natural and maybe with the Instagram era, it's even more tempting to do that, but that way there'll be dragons. You just can't do that. I think it's not a path to good mental health and self-esteem. And I think in, in general, it's better to focus on the value you can create. Your wife was very receptive to taking the big risk and making the move for you to go to business school. She obviously put up with world travels and a move south of the border to Minneapolis. When you said, hey, here's what I'm, this is what I think's next. Was she, you know, all for it? Was she hesitant? She was all for it. She was like, okay, this is something I've seen in you for quite a while. You've got to go for it. So she's always been an ally and an advocate and a supporter and continues to be. And I just can't say enough about how much I appreciate that support. And it is something that I think is it is worth reflecting on is that entrepreneurs do need support systems. And it's certainly something that I know is I've gone through dark days. I've gone through periods of what am I doing? I'm failing. I'm not doing okay. And I think many entrepreneurs go through those periods. It's not all exciting and thrilling and stuff. There's dark days. And having a support network is super, super important. Without a doubt. One of the common themes that we've heard from so many of our guests is having a supportive spouse. And I don't think I've yet to talk to anyone who has said that, you know, they had anything but support on the home front. And man, like you said, 
we've all had those dark days. We've had those hard days. And knowing that you're coming home to somebody who still stands behind you, even when things don't look good. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes it's the slap in the head to say, hey, you know, smarten up. <laughs> it's what you need. It's not all, right. not all foot rubs and joy. It's sometimes like, hey, you know, get your head out of your new, your new you know what, right? It, it, uh, pull up your socks and get back to work. And um, that's what support looks like. All right. I got to ask the logo that you built in PowerPoint. Is that the logo you're still using today? No, I'm not nearly as creative as that. I would be embarrassed to show you that first logo. It looks like somebody that doesn't have an ounce of creativity doing something in PowerPoint. So, Well, we can swap first logos offline and we'll compare that. How's that? That sounds like a plan. But if it shows up in social media, then I'm posting <laughs> yours too. <laughs> you land the first contract. Was that the point that you like finally scratched that itch and said, okay, now I've met my own qualifications to be an entrepreneur? I think landing that first contract was a big milestone. At that point, though, it was just my brother and I. Like, we still weren't a real business per se, and that we still didn't have employees. And so there's always the next milestone, right? That was a big milestone. But what's the next milestone? Well, let's, we got to hire people. And then the next milestone after that, which is, was this a fluke? We need to get another contract with another client. Can we do this again? Or was this, you know, what we can say, anybody will buy anything once. And are we selling to the lunatic fringe? Or do we have something that we think is, good and resonates with the market. So then it was, you know, getting to the first million dollars of revenue. So, and then it was how fast can we get to the next million dollars of revenue? And so there's always milestones. There's always something to look forward to. So I would say I still always feel a little unsettled, like the job's not done yet. There's more to do, but it is important to kind of think about those successes and those milestone events, because I tend to not celebrate them hugely. It was like, oh, that was nice. Let's get on to the next thing. So we landed that one contract. Well, that's nice, but we got to win a second one. We got to win a third one and and still drive forward. Something you said just triggered a thought and you were talking about, was it a fluke? Now we got to go get the next one and the next one and we got to hit that next milestone. And I have felt that so many times myself. I recently watched a docuseries on Netflix called Swamp Kings, and they mm. profile the Florida Gators college football team in the early 2000s. And Urban Meyer, the head coach, as soon as he won a championship, he didn't celebrate it. His first thing was, okay, he's literally on the phone with recruits mm. and didn't get to you know soak in that moment. He, he got on the phone with recruits because it was, okay, now I got to do it again. Yeah. And... That's a double-edged sword, in my opinion. Like, that yeah. drive is great, but at the same time, you need to be able to celebrate your victories and drink it in, enjoy that moment. Yep, I agree. I think that's something I don't do as well as I should, celebrate the victories, because I'm always, like, paranoid. Well, that was a fluke. We're, we got to do it again. But pausing and going, hell yeah, we did it, is great, and it's something I have to remind myself to do more of. When you got that first contract and you started talking through the milestones, did you have to hire? people right away to fulfill that first contract? Or were you and your brother able to do the work, just the two of you? We hired our first employee within, I think, 
a month and a half of winning that first contract. So it was pretty quick. And luckily, my brother had a network of people that he trusted, he knew would be able to do the work. So we were able to get those first hires pretty quickly without a lot of worry that did we mishire, did we get the wrong person? The hires actually became harder later on when we'd exhausted that network of people we knew and we actually had to hire from the broader market. But early on that, we were lucky that we had people that were willing to join us, were great, did great work. And yeah, so really just within a couple of months, we had our first employee. You said that that first employee was there to help you get the work done. And it sounds like the next several employees were at what point, or maybe a different question is, have you brought in people that are more internal focused that aren't doing the customer work? Do you have some kind of internal infrastructure support kind of roles today? So we do. And it, it was one of the things I think, again, if I could do it over again, I would have done differently. But I was very, very focused on revenue generating roles right from the get go. So hiring consultants basically is what we do, hiring developers and consultants to do the work. And I kept doing, like, for instance, I did the books myself and, you know, did our own web page and everything for years. You know, instead of what would have been the smart thing to do is, hire somebody better at it to do that work and free my time up. It was like, we can't hire a finance person. I can just do the books in the evening. And so we delayed some of those hires. And I think one of my kind of points of reflection is, yeah, I could do the books. I still could do the books today, but is it the best use of my time? And am I, am I really good at that? Or is it better to bring on the infrastructure necessary for us to truly unlock the revenue generating people. So I hired too many revenue generating people and not enough infrastructure or platform to allow us to get to that next level. And I think that was a mistake. It's a tricky balance. And it's one in our world being in the services business as well. Man, it's really hard to, I don't think you're ever in balance. Like it's constantly like, a, well, we're a little heavy over here. We're not, you know, and you got to keep doing it. Years ago, I got some advice from somebody that I had met at church and I forget the type of work that he did, but they owned their office building and he talked about how they didn't want to spend the money on a cleaning crew. Mm -hmm. So he and his wife would go through, you know, every couple nights and they would clean the bathrooms and vacuum and dust and do all that kind of stuff on their own. And he said, I, I developed a realization at some point that if I don't think I'm going to be doing this thing a year from now, it's time for me to hire for that today. Mm, right. And it didn't hit me immediately how good of advice that is. But I look back now and I'm like, man, that was spot on. And like you in the early days, I was doing the accounting and I was doing payroll. And mm -hmm. I can remember, oh my gosh, I can remember filling out, like manually going through the process of generating W-2s and 1099s and what a pain that was. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking there are people that are infinitely more skilled at doing this, that they get joy out of doing this. This not only is not joyful for me, but it's keeping me from doing other higher value activities and getting to the point where you just say, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to hand this off to somebody else. I think it's another, another milestone. It's another yeah. achievement for an entrepreneur. I agree. Like I look at it as that it's great that I did it because 
I've basically touched every business process you can touch within a business. I can do it, right? I, I know I can do it. I know what the work is. And if I'd never done payroll, it would have been a hypothetical thing. It just magically happens. Payroll happens. But now I've done it. I know what it goes into it. And the lesson that I think that you just talked about is exactly right. Is is this work going to lead us to be more successful or is it just work? And where am I best positioned as the entrepreneur to unlock greater value? And doing payroll is not what's going to move the needle for us. So yeah, it's an important lesson. And I have to remind myself every time I get caught doing administrative stuff to say, do I really need to do this? Or is there a better, more qualified person that can do that for us? The kind of work that you do is very technical and you've got the engineering background and you work for tech companies. And I'm sure that with ENY and and running the medical device company, you were involved in software projects in some way, but I haven't heard anything yet that makes me go, oh, Cameron is a software developer and he can crack open the code and debug things. Is that a fair statement? You haven't really been on the technical side of things. That's absolutely true. As a student, I remember doing some projects in Fortran, which for the young people out there, that was an early language that many of us had to learn. It's long since dead. But no, I'm not a developer. So what I would say, though, is I do understand business process. And the work we do is, you know, I think similar to the work you do, which is ultimately to improve business processes through automation and integrations. And so I can understand how a business process works and I can understand how to optimize a business process, which is basically a translation needed for the developers to know what to develop. Because sometimes you have great developers that can do both. They understand business process and they can understand how to code. More often or not, you've got people that are really great developers, but they may struggle with understanding what a business person says when they're trying to articulate how their business works or how it could work. And so, you know, I often get involved, even though I don't do the development get involved in helping define what that future state business process is, which can give the developers a target to go after. That makes a lot of sense. Maybe expanding on that, you and your brother as co-owners, co-founders, how have you guys divided responsibilities among you? So he is very technical. So my title is CEO. His title is president and CTO. So he defines the technical roadmap that we take, the technologies we use. He defines what quality looks like from a developer's point of view. He's actually remarkably good at understanding business process as well. So he's one of those people that can do both, but he's got that additional ability to really dig into the code. And occasionally I will catch him, just like I might do payroll, I will catch him at 11 o'clock at night, writing some code that somebody else could do, but he loves it so much that he will do it. And that means we're very complimentary. So I trust him explicitly when it comes to all the deep technical stuff. And he trusts me from a business point of view. And I think it's because that Venn diagram meshes in that way it does that we rarely have any conflict. So that's the next thing I wanted to get into. Getting into business with friends and getting into business with family, 
that can be a really dicey thing. And, you know, you talked about growing up thousands of miles away from your brother. He was 11 years old when you left home. You kind of knew what he did, but not really. It sounds like that familiarity may not have been there like some other families. Did that help you in your ability to work together? Yeah, I think it did. So, you know, you're right about the whole family thing. Like, I remember sitting on another board. It was another medical device company, and it was a husband-wife deal. And I remember kind of telling both of them, you know, this is a problem. I don't think how this, you know, you're going to have a hard time raising money. How do you handle conflict? How do you avoid this being, you know, business problem doesn't end up a problem at home. So it's definitely right to be concerned about some of these things. And we were pretty transparent right at the early days about this type of concern. The fact that we weren't really, really close, honestly, you know, I think is very helpful because it allows us to work on a professional level that doesn't create any weirdness at work. You know, one of the things I've always worried about is what do clients think and what do our employees think, you know, about two brothers that are in business together? And does it look weird? Is it strange? Do, are we not normal in terms of how a relationship between a CEO and CTO should be? But I think because of that distance, physically distance, I guess, in terms of years and experience, and the fact that we have very complementary skills, I think it actually works out quite well. It was one of the failure modes I was worried about, but I think it's turned out to be fine. All right. Complementary skill sets. What other advice would you give to somebody who is considering doing business with friends or family? So I think going through what I, we actually use this term at, in our consulting as well. We call it FMEA, failure modes and effects analysis. And we do that when we write code. We say, okay, what could go wrong? What are the failure modes? What's the impact of that failure happens? And, and therefore, how do we improve it? That FMEA, that failure modes process, I highly recommend people go through that in a business relationship early on. It's, it's what Gavin and I did early on is what are the things that could go wrong in our relationship and how are we going to address those? So what if it turns out that we're not compatible, that he doesn't like working with me? What do we do? How do we put that in our shareholder agreement so that there is a fair kind of ability to disconnect without destroying the business? How do we resolve conflict? How do we ensure that our spouses are on the same page? Because it is relevant as an entrepreneur that you know you can't just disconnect your home life and your work life. So we tried very early on to have those potential scenarios articulated and understood and role-played and basically said, yeah, we think we understand what we would do here. And it, I think it always came back to that essence of regardless of what happens in the business, we're going to be family. And we're not going to let the business undermine that. That is foundational. And so there will be nothing that happens in the business that will destroy our relationship as brothers and setting that tone right at the start and setting it explicitly and doing frequent check-ins and making sure that we are communicating actively, I think has been very helpful for us. Sounds like you've done a really good job planning for and navigating conflict. When you get together on the weekends or get together for a holiday, 
Can you separate work from the family time or do you find yourselves talking about the business while you're, you know, eating your Christmas dinner? It's very hard to separate completely. You know, every once in a while, you know, we might get frying pans in the forehead to say, knock it off, right? Just get back to focusing on the things that matter in front of us, which is our family. But it is honestly hard to not talk about business because that's, it's where we spend so much of our time because we live in different cities that are, you know, over a thousand miles apart. We don't get as much face-to-face time as we would crave, you know, running a business. So when we get that face-to-face time, it's really valuable to spend it on business. So we, it is a natural inclination for us to talk about business. And then our families collectively pull us back and say, knock it off. Focus on your families today. When you guys go out tomorrow, you know, just the two of you, that's when you talk about business. My dad and I don't work for the same company today. We did many years ago, but we work in the same business and our business has a strong partnership with theirs. And I've had many of those, you know, kicks under the table at a meal, like, hey, knock it off, time to change topics and (laughs) include some other people in this conversation. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And you know what? What's interesting is our spouses have opinions about our business too. So it's not like completely disconnected. So, you know, I value my brother's wife's opinion and I think he values my wife's opinion about things, even though they both have nothing to do with tech or IT or anything like that. Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, we've got an issue with an employee. What should we do? And it's remarkably insightful, some of the things that our spouses will say. And and it's just, you know, maybe a factor of we're too close to it. And they'll say, well, have you thought about X, Y, Z? I was just going to say, sometimes when you're that close to it, there's an emotional attachment to the situation. And having somebody that is completely unemotional about it, speaking into the situation can be really helpful. Yeah, I find myself talking with other business owners and going through situations like that. And for me, it's so easy to say, oh yeah, well just do this dummy. Yeah. But when they give me the advice back, I have a really hard time taking it because, oh, but you don't understand this and <laughs> here's this dynamic, but we need that objective yeah. third party. What have been some of the hardest moments of this journey? So we've talked a lot about the success and the good times, but it hasn't all been success. And one of the things that's happened, you know, interestingly, we grew a lot through the pandemic. We had some really strong years. And I think it's, you know, maybe a function of during the pandemic, a lot of companies doubled down on their tech stack and did a lot of good work that we had a privilege of being part of. And then what we found in 2023 actually is there was a pullback, interest rates, inflation, lots of different factors in play has actually slowed the business down and slowed business in general down. And we're, we have been a little bit of the tail on the dog, right? So we're not necessarily in control of these large companies deciding to stop projects or move those projects overseas. So, you know, we've gone through a period of contraction actually this year. So we've had to take a pause in hiring. We've actually had to let some people go, some great people go. And that is not fun, right? That feels like letting people down when you have to do that. And that's not been, that's not been easy. But that is something I take very personally. Those can definitely be some discouraging times. How do you wake up the next day and go back to it? Well, I think there's a lot of, you know, of course, 
You have to do it. It's not the waking up the next day and getting back to it that's the problem. It's the trepidation of getting to the decision that's the problem for me. Like, do we really need to let this person go? Like, if we just wait a few more weeks, the business might swing back up. Do we really need to do that in that constant gut churning, not getting to a decision and not being definitive about these hard decisions? That's the hard part. When you make that decision and you have those hard conversations and you unfortunately have to let those people go, it actually is a little bit of a load off, right? Because then it's kind of, okay, the button's been reset. We're not as big as we were a day ago, but maybe we're stronger because we're more financially viable. And we just have to get back at it. We have to focus on that next contract. We have to focus on delivering exceptional service to the people that do choose us. And so it's that one step in front of the other. So post those decisions is easier. Getting to those decisions is tough for me anyway. I think a lot of people out there can relate to that. And I think I would put myself in that camp as well. In terms of the types of customers that y'all serve, I mean, if you're working, you mentioned Workday earlier, and for those Mm -hmm. who may be listening that aren't familiar with it, Workday is a very large-scale software application that does human capital management, i.e. HR. It does, it's an ERP that helps with accounting and, you know, purchasing and and all kinds of things like that. So, and typically the the type of organization that's going to run Workday is going to be a fairly sizable organization. Mm -hmm. So, are are most of your customers, I'll use the term enterprise type customers, very large scale? Yeah. So our first customer, that one that we won our first contract with, was a company with 240,000 employees. And they hire 40,000 employees a year. It's a retail company. So that kind of was the first kind of marker of the types of companies we could do business with. So that's, you think about a two-person company landing a contract with a company that big, that was like, oh, geez, we are the dog that caught the car. And then they were very good because we still do have a successful relationship with them to introduce us to other enterprise companies in Canada, as well as in New York. So that got us into some more enterprise uh, clients in New York. From there, we got introduced to some people in Silicon Valley. So we're doing some work there. Those are more mid-sized companies. So you think about two to 5,000 people. So I'd say super large enterprise is actually not where we thrive. We thrive, even though we do work with those folks, We do best probably with companies that are entrepreneurial in a certain way, at least growth-oriented in a certain way, that are maybe in the 2,000 to 5,000 person scope. Like that's how many people they have. What are your favorite parts of your job? So I love talking to clients. You know, in the inception phase of a brand new client that's seen they've they need to solve a problem we've been successful in convincing them that we are potentially able to solve that problem for them that part is great i love talking to clients i fully recognize it's a massive leap of faith for a large company to choose to work with a tiny company like ours to solve a really important problem that is a giant leap of faith and it's a giant of transfer of trust to us that we cannot let down. And so those are moments of truth 
for our company and they're moments of truth for me and establishing those relationships and, you know, learning what's really going on in the companies that we work with and the problems that we can solve. That part is golden for me. So I love working with those clients and I love working with the team. Like our team is diverse. We've got a bunch of different types of people with different skills. They're great from different parts of the world. And they are always adding new perspectives on things and how to solve a problem and things that were way beyond my ability to comprehend, like a technical solution to a hard problem. I might be able to identify the problem. I'm not equipped to actually figure out what the solution is. So seeing those moments of truth and being participating in working sessions with them as the aha moment materializes and how we can solve those problems is also absolutely fantastic. And on the flip side, what are the parts of the job that you really don't enjoy? So there are occasions, like every services company, where there is a cultural mismatch between who you are as a company and the culture of the company we're working with. You know, one of the things that we tried to set up early on, which is, hey, we're running our own business. We should be able to choose the types of people we work with, which includes employees, of course, but also includes our clients. And generally, they're great. Like we have an amazing client portfolio. But once in a while, there is a mismatch. There's an expectation that somehow we can't meet or their look, you know, their culture is different. And, you know, I remember last year we were working with a client and they were a client that loved to yell at their own employees and loved to yell at us. So that was just their culture. They were run by fear and that was not cool. Like I cannot abide our employees getting yelled at or belittled or back to that thing I mentioned about IBM of you know, not being demonstrated respect for the individual. And so there's been some really hard conversations where we've effectively had to fire some clients or said goodbye to clients, which really means saying goodbye to some revenue. But that's pretty foundational, right? Like if a bad client relationship can undermine your culture. And I know, Scott, this culture is really important to you. It's really important to us. And given services, businesses often spend so much time with their clients. If there's a mismatch or if there's a toxic culture with your clients, it can really hurt your ability to grow a culture that's healthy and unlocks the best out of your people. And so that's the part that I dislike the most is seeing a cultural mismatch that you didn't recognize at the early stage of selling a deal and then seeing it be manifested and not being able to solve that problem and you know having to separate those relationships not a fun thing to do thinking about earlier talking about what you kind of viewed an entrepreneur to be i'm not going to get it right and this is probably too extreme of a statement but i think you said something to the effect of you don't have to answer to anybody else. You get mm -hmm. to be the ultimate decision maker. And hearing you talk about firing a, a customer, like that's one of those things that, that you get to do. You're empowered. You don't have to go to the board and say, hey, you know, this is a lot of revenue, but our yeah. people can't handle it. You just get to do it. And so I imagine that as unpleasant as it is, that's another kind of punctuation point on mm -hmm. I am an entrepreneur now. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the learning I have is you actually, are, you never are truly not accountable to anybody. Like I feel every day I'm accountable to our team. I have to do right by them, certainly accountable to our clients. 
So this idea that you're, you know, bulletproof is not true. And I feel like I'm in service to our employees and to our clients. But a part of that is saying no to some things and the kind of the buck stops here for better or worse, right? It can be stressful. Sometimes you'd kind of wish it was somebody else's decision, right? Whether it's having to make a downsizing decision or having to let go of a client, you wish somebody else would make that decision. And then you go, but no, it is my decision. That's what I got into this for is that degree of freedom. And I'm going to make those tough calls. Yeah. And making a call like that, I think it speaks volumes to your team that we value you more than we value the revenue. And obviously you have to be very careful about that, but I think it sends a a very good message to your people that they're not just paid workers, shut up and do your job. It's we value you and we want to create an environment where you can thrive. Yeah. Like you, we compete in the market to sell our services, but we also compete in the market for employees, for our team and our team every day, they could go get another job. They're all very talented just like your team, they could go work somewhere else. So every day they're choosing to stay with us. We got to give them a reason to stay. We got to give them a reason to say they can build a career that they can be proud of working at Dispatch, working with people that they enjoy working with and can grow with and feel mentored by and can mentor. That's super important. And small businesses don't thrive unless you can attract great people and keep great people. And that's that's a responsibility and an opportunity, I think, that us as entrepreneurs need to embrace. What's been the biggest surprise along the way? Well, I haven't bought my 100-foot yacht yet. So surprised <laughs> about that. So <laughs> I want an invite for the christening when you do. Yeah. You know, that's it's not the question you asked, but, you know, some people go into entrepreneurship because they want to get rich. I would say we didn't go into entrepreneurship to get rich. We went into entrepreneurship to create value. You know, obviously generating wealth is part of creating value. That is obviously silly to say that's not something we think about on occasion, but you know, it's not about the hundred foot yacht. It's about being proud at the end of the day when we do move on, when we do retire to say, yeah, we've done something important and interesting and move the needle. We've applied a lever to the world and we've moved in an inch. That's something that I hope we can, when we get to that point where we're, you know, hanging up our spurs, we can say we've done that. So you mentioned something earlier, but I want to ask it again, maybe in a slightly different way. If you were going back and starting this all over, what else might you do different? So one of the interesting things that I'd continue to think about is we've entirely bootstrapped our business. We bootstrapped it with. I put in $5,000, my brother put in $5,000, everything else we've created from that initial investment. And every once in a while, I do go, you know, if we'd put in, like we've got outside investors, if we put in more money, if we go get outside investment today, what would that mean for us? Would we grow faster? Would we be more successful? Would we be better? We've chosen not to do that partly because of the control idea that when you bring in outside money, it's you're now bringing somebody else to the table that has potentially different interests. But it's something that I wonder about if we should have or should we take outside investment to scale. And our choice to date has been 
bootstrap this thing. Like, let's see what we can do from nothing or basically nothing. But it's something that I think about a lot. We've interviewed founders who have taken money either in debt or in, you know, taking on investors. And we've also talked to tons who, like yourself, have bootstrapped and were in that same category. But it's interesting. It has come up multiple times. I've begun to wonder, mm -hmm. should I do this? You know, we can grow faster. And but man, that's a hard thing to give up that control because you're absolutely right. When you bring somebody else in that owns a piece of it, it can definitely change the dynamic. Yeah. One of the early experiences I had on a board was a VC-backed company. Their first investment, it was a partnership of three friends. They got a million dollars from a VC to build a business. They got the check. And then the VC, who is now part of the board, said, okay, so I like you and I like you, but I don't like you. So you're gone. <laughs> so even though he wasn't in charge, he was in charge. And then a year later, they were going for a, the next round. It was a pre, the first round was pre-seed. Second round was pre-series A, series A. And the VC said, okay, I'll put this next round in, but I, I still like you, but I don't like you. You're gone. And so <laughs> to think that outside money doesn't impact how you run your business, it's, in my experience, is not true. And that's one of the things I've been very cautious about is that an outside investor can change the fundamental nature and culture and direction and strategy of your business. So think hard whether you want that money and think hard about where should that money come from. I think about, we talked earlier about your parents and, you know, were they proud of you for all these things you'd accomplished? And you said, I think they're more proud of the fact that we clung to the values that we were brought up with. And you talked about your very first day at IBM and, you know, respect for the individual that was clearly a, a core value i think you're a very principled person you are very centered around your values and i think it's important to weigh big decisions like that against your values before you proceed with something that could have a meaningful impact on the organization yeah i think values are like the world is moving so fast like it's impossible to keep up with anything so you do need touch points. You need kind of little, you know lighthouses or things to hang on to. And for us, it's a sense of values, I'd say. And I think that's, you know, in terms of entrepreneurs, I would, if you haven't thought about them explicitly, everybody has values. Sometimes you just haven't explicitly articulated what they are. I do think it's a good exercise to go through. What are the things that you think are really important that are your touchstones, that are your lighthouses? Uh, that can help guide you to make decisions, right? And you're going to have to own those decisions, whether they're right or wrong. But at least if they're consistent with your values, you can sleep at night. You said it just a second ago, the world is moving so fast. What's next for Cameron? What's next for Dispatch? That's a great question. So we are, you know, like I said, we've had a bit of a retraction in 2023. I remain still very optimistic about growth, optimistic about the space we're in, the team we have. So our objective is to get back at it. After this call, I'll be getting back at talking to some customers and winning those next contracts. And that is, I think, we're just going to get back into the field and play the game. So we're looking actually at opening an office in Europe. So 
We're starting to think about expansion a little bit, but in a very kind of cautious way. Every decision we make is not going to be a fatal decision if it's wrong. But yeah, we're going to get back at it. We're going to focus on growth, focus on value, and having some fun along the way. You got to have fun along the way. Absolutely. Is there anything that we didn't get into that you hoped, any wisdom, any advice that you'd want to share? I'm usually somebody that listens to wisdom. I don't know if I have a ton of wisdom myself to offer, but you know what I can say is I respect everybody that is an entrepreneur or thinking about an entrepreneur. I think one of the things that I struggle myself with, but I think it's important framing, the language is important, is the idea of failure, the word failure. You have to take the energy out of that word. There is a ton of learning through doing something and finding out it doesn't work. It's not the same as failure. And we have had way too many failures since we started to count. And we survive those by kind of thinking those as learning opportunities. Or It's the growth mindset, I think, that is vital to an entrepreneur, and particularly because things are so moving so fast. If you don't have a growth mindset, you're going to struggle, I think. And if you don't have a relationship with the word failure that's a healthy uh, relationship, you're going to have a hard time. So I would highly encourage people to think about reframing what failure is in terms of opportunities to learn and thinking about what a growth mindset is. A growth mindset means being comfortable not knowing the answers, but being comfortable that we can learn. And if you have those two things, I think those are two really important ingredients to being a great entrepreneur. Cheers to that. Cameron, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It has been my pleasure. And Scott, I look forward to seeing you again in person very soon. And yeah, what you're doing here is great. I love it. I think this is a great forum for voices of entrepreneurship that don't often get heard. And I want to applaud you for this podcast and what you do for all of the entrepreneurs across a whole array of different types of businesses and missions and areas of focus. So well done and keep at it. That was Cameron Hay, co-founder and CEO of Dispatch Integration. To learn more, visit dispatchintegration.com. If you or a founder you know would like to be a guest on In the Thick of It, email us at intro at founderstory.us. 